what's the Lord's Supper? Why the Lord's Supper? If you'll remember, when I started this series, I told a story about my father and I driving back from Florida and him saying to me, uh, Kyle, when did the Lord's Supper come up and, and what does it mean? I've never heard a sermon on it. Well, if you've been with us, then you've heard now five sermons on it at least, and, and hopefully it's been beneficial to you. We've looked at how the Lord's Supper is a communion with God himself. How actually at the table, by the Spirit, we are lifted up into heaven, and there we partake of the very life of God in Jesus Christ. His body and his blood requires imagination. And not only that, but the Lord's Supper, we found, it unites us to all who participate in God. That is, it is as much sociological as it is theological, and it is sociological precisely because it's theological. We are all one body because we all partake of the one bread. And so our services, they, they reflect these things. We lift up our hearts when we come to the table, and we do it together. We also found that the supper, it returns us to that place that God intended creation, uh, humanity to always be, and that is to return thanks, Eucharist, joyful thanksgiving to God for all the things that he has provided for us. We learned that the Lord's Supper, it pulls us forward and causes us to, um, to turn our eyes towards heaven. We learned that the Lord's Supper, it confirms our relationship with God. So many things. And now we're coming to the end, and I can hear the question, maybe. Kyle, that all sounds very interesting, you know, being mystically united with the body of Christ about all places and times, ascending into heaven by the Spirit and partaking of the flesh and blood of Jesus. That sounds all interesting, uh, but uh, what does that have to do with, like, life, real life? Wednesday at 4 o'clock. And what does the Lord's Supper have to do with my practical life? Like, the life that I enter into tomorrow morning when my kids are screaming and they've spilled milk on the floor and I have to get them to school and they refuse to put on their clothes and one has smeared toothpaste all over the mirror. What does the Lord's Supper have to do with that life? Well, on the one hand, I want to say that the Lord's Supper has to do with real life and the real world because actually the Lord's Supper connects us to and draws us into real life and the real world because that world, that life, the life of heaven, it is reality. And what the Lord's Supper does is it, it refocuses us on reality and reminds us that all the other things that we hear most of the time are just lies about what reality is. Nevertheless, I understand the point. I mean, what, though, does this have to do with practical Christian living Wednesday at 4? As we come to the end of this series, that's what I want to take up, provide some reflections on that. Before I do so, let me pray. God, I do pray that your word would be as a sword 
that it would divide us up, that it would fashion us, that it would prepare us to be living sacrifices for you, even on Wednesday, even at four. In Jesus' name, by the power of the Spirit, we ask it. Amen. Well, you know, some traditions call this meal the Mass. And for some of us, that might be uh, something that brings nostalgia, and for others of us, that might bring consternation. But uh, the word Mass just simply means, it comes from the Latin missio, which means mission or sending. And so it's worth asking the question, why did Christians ever connect this table with our mission or sending? What does this have to do with Christian mission? One of the ways to, I think, approach that is to think about this. The image that Jesus uses most often for his kingdom, and that's what he came to do, proclaim the kingdom. The image that Jesus uses most often for his kingdom is a feast. Uh, Jesus said to his disciples that he promised them that they would have table fellowship in the kingdom, Luke 22, 28-30. When the believing centurion comes to Jesus, Jesus tells them that many will come from the east and the west and they will sit in fellowship at the feast of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they will recline at the table in the kingdom, Matthew, 5, or Matthew 8, 5-13. Jesus tells a parable of a wedding feast where a king goes and sends out invitations, but guests are reluctant. And in contrast to John's ministry, which was a ministry of kingdom preparation, which is marked by fasting, Jesus' ministry is a ministry of kingdom inauguration, and it's marked by feasting. Why don't your disciples fast, they asked him. And Jesus is constantly offering meals and feasting. And the culmination of the kingdom, well, Revelation, the book of Revelation talks about that, and it describes it as a wedding feast, the wedding, the marriage supper of the Lamb. So the kingdom is a feast, and a feast is the kingdom. And so that means that this table This table is emblematic, that it points to, that it is a sign of that table. That this feast points to that feast. Not only does this feast point to that feast, but this feast actually participates in that feast. It's a part of that feast. I tell you, Jesus said, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine, of this fruit of the vine, this fruit from this table until I drink it anew with you in the kingdom of my Father. This feast is a part of that feast, which is the kingdom. Put differently, Jesus is saying that the Lord's Supper is an amuse-bouge. You know what an amuse-bouge is, don't you? I didn't until a couple years ago, and I went to Scarlet Begonia, and uh, I had the fortunate pleasure of going and eating there, and I'm sitting there, and the waiter, he brings this little thing to me, very small, and it looked beautiful. And I said, um, excuse me, uh, sir, we didn't order this. And he says, well, I know. And I said, well, so I don't think we're supposed to have this. He says, no, it's, it's an amuse-bouge. And I'm thinking to myself, what's an amuse-bouge? But I didn't say that. 
I did what uh, any of us do in that situation. I Googled it. And a moose-booze is something that you get in a, a fancy restaurant, and it's like an appetizer, but it's not an appetizer. It's like an appetizer in that it comes before the meal, but it's not an appetizer in that it is free, and you don't get to choose. The chef chooses. It's the chef's selection. And not only is it a chef's selection, the chef is trying to say something by it. The purpose of it is to prepare the guests for the meal and to offer them a glimpse into what is to come, a glimpse into the chef's approach. One famous chef put it like this. He said, an amuse-bouche is the best way for a great chef to express his big idea in small bites. Well, here we have the big idea of the kingdom all compacted into a small bite. Or, how theologian Peter Lightheart puts it, the Eucharist is our model of the eschatological order, that is the kingdom, a microcosm of the way things ought to be. See, this feast is a microcosm of that feast. This feast is a microcosm of the kingdom. And if that is the case, then here's the question I want to reflect on this morning. What does this small bite tell us about the kingdom? What implications might this have for kingdom living? Well, the first thing that I think that it tells us is that kingdom living is creational. I mean, think about this. Let's not overlook the fact that the Lord's Supper is a meal. A meal. There is nothing more fundamental to being human than to needing to eat, eat meals. In fact, the first thing that God commanded humanity to do, you know what it was? It was to eat. Genesis 1.29, God lays a table out. He sets a table for Adam and Eve. Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. You shall have them for food. To be human, to be a creature, is to be dependent on God's creation. It's basic to who we are as human beings, and this is brought into the kingdom. You know, I think a lot of life, the goal is to become independent. In a lot of areas of life, the goal is to become independent. When you're working somewhere, the goal is to become independent so that you no longer have to rely on others, but you can do your job without asking. The goal of um, in raising children is so that they become independent in lots of ways, right? So that they can do the bedtime routine on their own. Glory, glory, hallelujah. <laughs> but the kingdom, it's different than that. You see, what eating does is it says that we are dependent. And if we eat not only at creation, but we also eat as part of the new creation. That means that we never grow out of our dependence. You see, the Christian life, it always reminds us that we are creatures, and in the kingdom, we don't somehow transcend that. We don't become divine. We are always creatures. We are always dependent. The goal of the Christian life is dependence, and where dependence is the objective weakness, it is an advantage. See, we remain creatures at this meal, dependent. Dependent on what? Dependent on creation, bread and wine. These elements, these fundamental elements of creation, this stuff, this matter of the earth, God brings it into his 
kingdom, this sign for his kingdom, which is part of his kingdom, which is part of the eschatological order, the final order of the world. Psalm 104 is a beautiful psalm where the psalmist reflects on each day of creation. And he reflects on day one, and then day two, and then day three, and then day four. And as he reflects on every day of the creation, so on and so forth, he praises God. You know what he does? You know what he says when he gets to day six? And he starts reflecting on all God did on day six, the day he created humanity. The psalmist says this, you cause, he praises God because he says, you cause the grass to grow for livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth, wine to gladden the heart of man and oil to make his face shine, bread to strengthen his heart. When the psalmist reflects on creation and how God made the world to be, and he, when he reflects on the sixth day and he praises God, he praises him that he made him a food eater, a dependent food eater, which is typified in his eating of bread and wine. Bread to strengthen the heart, wine to make it glad. What does this tell us about the kingdom and kingdom living? Well, I think it tells us this. It tells us that the kingdom is not a cancellation of this worldly concerns. The kingdom does not bypass this worldly concerns. The kingdom does not bypass the creation order. In other words, while this table is distinct from other tables, while this meal is distinct from other meals, there is also continuity with other meals. That is, that, that life, real life, life that God cre- as God created it to be in the beginning, that that life is taken up. That God didn't make any junk, and God doesn't junk that which he made. That heaven itself is not some other world bypassed this world. It is this world transformed and transfigured for his glory. And so that means that, that we need to care about creation, that care for creation is actually part of kingdom living. Now, oftentimes Christians, they can get this idea that Real Christian life is the life of the mind, it is the thought life, it is my interpiety, but it doesn't really have to do with stuff, with matter. Stuff doesn't matter that much, right? And yet God brings stuff, the matter of the earth, bread and wine, and all the molecules and substances that they make up, and he says, now this is, this is part of my kingdom. So, so what that means is that, that churches, you know, churches sometimes they think that that godliness is austerity, and that, that to be a really godly church that's focused on the, the kingdom, that's like two-ply toilet paper and orange juice from concentrate. No, 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 no. That, that God, he cares that we care about exercise and the environment, that this is part of kingdom living, that, that kingdom living is care for the poor and their well-being, It's care for cleanliness and things like that. This this is all part of kingdom living, the stuff of the earth, bread and wine. But bread and wine tell us something else. It says that kingdom living is not just creational. Kingdom living is also cultural, bread and wine. I love bread. Does anybody love bread? I love bread. I am so upset with this whole gluten-free craze, (laughs) which I now have a chance to preach against. My favorite bread, some of my favorite bread is in Austria. I love the, the black bread, uh, the Schwarzbrot. I love it. I love it. It's so 
good. I mean, for me, uh, Austrian bread is emblematic of Austrian culture. But it's not just Austrian culture that's like that. I mean, could you imagine going to France without a warm French baguette in the morning? A little butter, a little jam. Mmm. Anybody hungry? Bread. It's, it's emblematic of, of culture. And so is wine. I was speaking with a, a friend once in England, and he said, you know, um, he did this, he loved wine, and he did this uh, wine tour up the California coast. I said, well, what'd you think? How'd you like it? He said, well, American wine is kind of like American culture. It's like America. It's very big and bold up front, but it lacks subtlety. <laughs> I thought he had something there. Uh, and I'm like, yeah, and English, British food, too much subtlety, right? <laughs> but but th- there's something about that, 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 that wine, it is, it is emblematic of a culture and cultivation. I mean, if you think about it, uh, I love California wine. I love California wine, but I really love old world wine. Wine from Rhone and Burgundy and Bordeaux. Uh, and I think when you hold a glass of wine from one of those regions, you've got 2,000 years of history in that glass. 2,000 years of human culture and cultivation. You see, uh, bread and wine, it's, it's not grapes and grain that Jesus gives us. You know, God he could have done grapes and grain, but he doesn't. Those are naturally occurring. But, but bread and wine, they're not naturally occurring, that they actually take the stuff of the earth that we have to develop. The psalmist praises God because he says, you cause plants for man to cultivate. You know, the first thing that God, God created humans to be was, was to be culture makers. Fill the earth and subdue it. Work and keep the ground. The idea is not simply of preservation, but of cultivation. It's our initial and original calling as humans to cultivate the earth. And bread, it is, it is a cultivation. You know, it's not easy to make good bread, and it's even harder to master it. And wine, really good wine, takes a long time to develop. And, and it's more than simply just uh, throwing things together. Uh, there is a whole world of technology and agriculture and industry and economics that are, that are in any piece of bread, loaf of bread, or glass of wine. And all of that is brought to the table. All of that is included in the kingdom, you see. You see, our culture making, it is part of kingdom living. And so the kingdom and God, he's not unconcerned with the work of our hands, but actually involves the work of our hands, that he includes the work of our hands into his kingdom. So that whatever we do, we do it for the Lord, and we do it for his glory, and we do it for kingdom effect. You know, the garden of Genesis becomes a city in Revelation, and it doesn't get there by divine fiat. It gets there by you and me tilling the earth, by mining the world. And so Christians, we don't need to abandon culture, but we need to be involved in every sphere of 
human productivity, ingenuity, and activity. Christians need to be engineers and scientists. They need to be involved in medicine. They need to be involved in research. They need to be involved in gardening and cooking and every aspect because this is all about kingdom life. So what do you cultivate? What is the work of your hands that God is calling you to do? Some of you are cultivating families. A marriage. Children. Some of you are cultivating gardens. Some of you are cultivating institutions. You sit on boards or you work in institutions. Some of you are cultivating food. Some of you are involved in research and technology and you're cultivating things there. You're, pro, uh, you're um, propelling our understanding and use of the world and developing it. You're taking the world, the raw materials, or what's already been developed, and you're transforming it into something more. That's what bread and wine are. And those things God can use. It's not that God uses them as they are. Now, don't get me wrong. The world that is to come is this world transfixed and transfigured. It is transfigured, and no human can do that. But it is this world transfigured. It is the work of our hands transfigured. So what do you do with the work of your hands? Where has God called you? Do it for the king. The kingdom is creational. The kingdom is cultural. The kingdom is also enjoyable. Bread and wine. And wine is a drink of luxury. It's not a drink of nutrition, primarily. And it is kind of scandalous. If you ever noticed, it's scandalous in the culture, to like have alcohol before 12 a.m. Ever think about that? To have alcohol before noon is kind of scandalous, right? You only, uh, you don't usually use alcohol before 12 unless you're abusing alcohol. Uh, Except there are a couple occasions, of course, where it's culturally acceptable. Those occasions are if you're like on vacation, traveling to a vacation, or maybe there's a big wedding day and you have a, a mimosa beforehand or whatever, but, but you wouldn't do it on a work day or anything like that, right? Because wine is a drink of relaxation. Wine is a drink of, of pleasure and enjoyment. And think about this, we drink wine every week before noon. <laughs> Do you ever think about that? Every week before noon, we drink wine. Well, why do we do that? Why would we do that? What is going on there? When Jesus gives us bread to strengthen us, but wine to gladden our hearts, and doesn't just mean you like the taste. When Jesus does that, he's saying, my kingdom is a kingdom of rest and relaxation and enjoyment. You know, some Christians are way too light and way too breezy. And it's like nothing is heavy. That's certainly the case. But you know, other Christians are way too heavy. Everything is always so weighty, and it's like everything is austere, and they can't enjoy themselves. It's like me. I struggle with that. And you meet these Christians, and you get this sense that if you're really about the kingdom, and you're really about the kingdom living, then there's no time for rest, there's no time for relaxation, there's no time for luxury, there's no time for enjoyment, because, because there's just too much to do. There's too much to do, and if we didn't do it, then, then God might be mad at us. 
but Jesus gives wine. You know, priests in the Old Testament, they were never allowed to drink wine but in the presence of God. They were never allowed to drink wine in the presence of God because wine is the thing that you drink after the work day. That wine is the thing you drink when the work is over. Wine is the drink that induces relaxation. And see, for the priest, the work was never done. There was always another sacrifice to be made because there was always more sin being had. And so you had to keep on with the sacrifices, and so you could never stop and drink wine. And yet we are commanded, commanded by God to drink wine in his presence. What's going on? Well, it's simply this, that the final sacrifice has been done. That Jesus has finished the work. And because of that, his kingdom is a kingdom of rest and relaxation. Where we say it is finished and we can trust and rest in him. And so we do it. We do it not when the work week is over, but did you know this is the first day of the week? We do it on the first day of the week and at the beginning of the day. You say, well, that's, that's like having dessert before dinner. That's backwards. It doesn't make sense. Exactly. That's the kingdom. See, every other thing in life tells you you've got to earn it to enjoy it. But God comes and says in the gospel, enjoy me and then live for me out of that. See, every other principle in life says you need to struggle to be free. You need to struggle through the week so you can be free on the weekend. But Christianity, it says, I have set you free that you might struggle. I have set you free in my grace. And so God, he provides wine. It's a, king, it's a kingdom of enjoyment and of pleasure. And we need to be okay with that. We need to be okay with actually having luxury every once in a while. Not all the time. But things cannot be always Lent and never Easter. It actually is a denial of the gospel itself. Kingdom of living is creational. Kingdom living is culture. Kingdom living is enjoyable. But kingdom living is also relational. In chapter 11, verse 33, Paul says, When you come together to eat, wait for one another. That is, that Paul assumes that in this meal, we don't eat alone, we don't eat by ourselves, we don't have private communions, but we eat together. And we not only eat together, that we share our resources together, that we do this together, that we share the bread and we share the wine together, the work of human hands, which is one of the reasons why I, I really wish, like in the, uh, it used to be that, that you would actually bake the bread and, and make the wine and the people would bring it, and it was a representative of their gifts. And Yes, we're paying money to do that now, so we're doing the same thing. But it's a sense that you're offering God the work of your hands, and he is using that in his service. But then we share it around with others. We don't say that's the work of my hands, and so I keep it to myself. No, we share it. And in sharing, we build relationships. See, the kingdom, it is relational. Some of us in here, because of this is a Presbyterian church, Reformed tradition, some of us are from the Reformed tradition. And for those of us who are from the Reformed tradition, there's something that we should probably be, be honest about, and that's this. Uh, we're usually really good about focusing on doctrine and personal piety. And that's good. We should. We should focus on doctrine and we should focus on personal piety. But the thing that we're often not as good at is focusing on relationships. 
on investing in relationships and thinking about relational health and relational maturity and emotional maturity and investing and pouring into those and making those a priority. It's funny, I, I love, um, you, you always know you're in like a Presbyterian group when uh, someone um, calls and they say, what time's the meeting start? And you say, well, it starts at six. Well, that's when we have dinner and we're going to have like, you know, appetizers and start hanging out. And they get, no, 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 no. What time does the meeting start? Right? Like, what time are we going to get to the agenda? When's the real business going to start? As if the relationships weren't part of the real business of the kingdom. The real investment of the kingdom. See, that's all part of it. And so I think that we, we need to be willing to get together without an agenda. To get together without an agenda of, I have to finish this Bible study or have this kind of thing or get this out of it. That we, we, we can, those are all good things, but we need to be willing to get together without an agenda. And we also need to be willing, I think, more, we need to do a better job of celebrating one another. Of celebrating one another. Of having parties for one another. Of saying thanks to one another. Of cheering one another along. We need to, to be a community of celebration where we celebrate one another and we invite others in to that. And so, one of the things that we're going to be doing over the next year is in order to facilitate those things, we're going to have what I'm calling CPC meetups. Meetup. If you've been in Santa Barbara for a while, you've probably heard of the meetup kind of community where they have a meetup for bikers or hikers or whatever, and it's just you show up at this place and you get to know people and you do something together. And we're going to have CPC meetups. And the reason is the only agenda there is to be together, to do life together to get to know one another. And it's a great agenda to have. So, the kingdom and kingdom living, it is creational, it is cultural, it is enjoyable, it is relational, but finally, kingdom living is also devotional. In chapter 10, verse 12, our church is 14 through um, through 21, Paul writes, he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And then he says, I speak as sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And then he concludes in verse 21, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Paul sees here an intimate connection between the Lord's Supper and participation in the Lord's Supper and fleeing from idolatry. Now, what is it? What is that connection? I mean, why does Paul say flee from idolatry and then start talking about the Lord's Supper? Well, you say, well, it's pretty clear why he says flee from idolatry. That makes sense. And by the way, an idol for Paul is not uh, simply bowing down at a statue, an idol is to look to anything to be and do for you what only God can be and do for you. An idol is that thing that you look to and you say, if I didn't have that, then I don't know how I could go on living. It's your greatest nightmare. An idol is also uh, in your greatest fear. And also is, it could also be your greatest dreams. You said, if only I get that, or when I get that, or I'm on the route to that, and if I can have that, then life is going to be worth living. That is an idol. 
And an idol is also anything you look to be your savior. When you get in trouble, where do you go? That's an idol. And Paul says, flee from idolatry. Why? Well, he says flee from idolatry because we're supposed to worship the Lord. But, but what is it particularly about the Lord's Supper that makes idolatry so unthinkable? That's the question. To answer that question, I think we need to know something a bit more about Israel's sacrificial system. And if you understand the sacrifices of Israel, I think, and you're going to ask an Israelite about their sacrifices and to explain them to you, you know what they would do? I think they would tell a story. A story about a father and a son. His only son, the son whom he loved. A story about Abraham and Isaac. It was read for us earlier. You see, one day God came to Abraham, the Bible says, to test him. And, here was, and then he says, take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, and I want you to take him to this place called Mount Moriah, and there I want you to sacrifice him. It's almost unthinkable. But here's the test. The test was this. Abraham, do you love me more than Isaac, who's your only son, the son whom you love? That, you see, Abraham, for Abraham, all his hopes, all his dreams, everything was bound up in Isaac. Isaac was the promised child through whom the blessings of God would come to fulfillment. Isaac was his everything. And God said, wait, I want to see, though, that I am more than your everything. So do I mean more to you than Isaac? Are you more devoted to me than to Isaac? That's what the test was. And Abraham, he is obedient. He resolves to take his son. He takes him to the top of Mount Moriah. And there, do you know what happens? In the last hour, in the 11th hour, when the knife is raised, the Bible says, when the knife is raised, God called out and he said, Stop! Stop. Do not lay your hand on the boy and do not do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now I know that you are committed to me, more committed to me, more devoted to me than you are to Isaac. And then God does something else. He provides a ram that's in a thicket. And there... He offers as a sacrifice that ram. Now what's interesting about that is that it's on Mount Moriah. We read of Mount Moriah later in the Bible. Do you know where it is? It's where Jews built the temple on Jerusalem. And don't you know that when they went and offered their sacrifices year after year to explain and to understand those sacrifices, they looked back to the sacrifice of their patriarch and they said, when we act, uh, offer up our sacrifices, it's the same thing as when he offered up his sacrifices. That is, Israelites would come and they would identify with the ram. They would put their hands on it and they would say, this life is my life. And so when that life was offered up on the altar, what they were saying is, God, my life is sacrificed to you. My everything is for you. Those who identified with the sacrifice were saying, God, I am wholly committed to you. I am devoted to you. Well, we've learned that the Lord's Supper, that to participate in it is to identify with Jesus' sacrifice. How? By eating and drinking. 
the cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break is not a participation in the body of Christ. It's through eating and drinking. You know, the philosopher Fauerbach, he said that a man is what he eats. He's famous for that. There's something about that, that a person is what they eat, that you take, you take this stuff into your body and, and it actually starts becoming kind of part of you. It's transformed into life and such. You know, people, they start, to, they start to smell like the things that they eat. Did you know that? There was this, I heard this story. It's kind of humorous one time. Uh, this person who was not very socially sensitive, uh, who was uh, an Anglo-American, talked to someone from India, and they asked the person from India, they said, um, tell me, why do Indians always smell like garlic? Not very socially sensitive. So um, I love what the person said, though. The guy from India responded. He said, I don't know. Why do people from America always smell like butter? (laughs) Did you know you smell like butter? The things that we eat, it produces aroma in our body. Then they come out, and we're so used to it, we don't even notice it, right? It, it, it just comes out of us that we are what we eat. Now, what do we eat? This is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. You are the aroma of Christ, Paul says. See, when we identify in this sacrifice, we find that we're identifying not only in, in saying, I need the sacrifice for me as a substitute, but we're saying, God, my life is bound up with this life, and this pattern of living is my pattern of living. That I am as devoted to you as the sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus is devoted to you. Anthony Thistleton puts it this way, he says, the Lord's Supper signifies identification with Christ in his death as both the source of redemption and the pattern for life and lifestyle. See, you are what you eat. And when we participate in this meal, in this sacrifice, we are saying what Jews before said when they participated in the sacrifice of, uh, in sacrificial meals and identified with the sacrifice. They are saying what Abraham was saying when he went on the ma- up on the mountain and he gave the sacrifice. They are saying, and we are saying, Lord, I am yours. I am devoted to you wholly, fully, completely. And I will not serve another. I will not be an idolater. I will flee from all the other gods and all the other loves and I will seek you as my highest love. That's what we say every time we come and we eat this meal. So here is the question. Are you what you eat? You who come and eat the bread and drink the wine, are you what you eat? As Jesus gave his body for the life of the world, do you, who are part of his body, give yourself for the life of the world? As he who poured out himself in self-sacrificial love, do you pour yourself out for others in self-sacrificial love? Are you what you eat? Now that I know, now I know, God said to Abraham that you feared me. See, are you what you eat? 
even on a Wednesday afternoon, even at 4 p.m. Well, that day, once Abraham had committed the sacrifice, I think that it's important that they don't call the name of the mountain devotion. They don't say, this is, this is going to be called devotion. Abraham names the mountain, and he doesn't name it devotion. He names it provision. The Lord will provide. Because you see, it's precisely as Abraham gave up his life that he found out that he received life. Real life. True life. Eternal life. It's in giving his life that he found his life. Jesus said, if you would follow him, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. And that anyone wishing to save his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake and for the gospel of the kingdom's sake, he will find it. And that's why we come. Because we give the work of our hands. We give bread and we give wine and we give our very selves to God. And what do we get back? We get him who is our life forever and ever. So prepare to come and to give and to receive. God, we do pray that you would give us your very self and that the confidence that you do that would free our hands so that we give you all of who we are. Not only during this hour, not only at this meal, but in every aspect of our lives every day. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.